I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Over the past weekend, the little pantry that could officially closed its doors after over a decade in operation. On its last day of service, we paid a visit to the shop, which has been much more than just a pantry to folks in need in North Nashville over the years. Today, we'll remember the little pantry that could and hear from people who run other food pantries in town to learn why they're needed and just how they stay afloat. But first, the state legislature is considering a few different bills dealing with criminal justice. Today, we're going to talk about one referred to as truth in sentencing. Here to unpack that with us is WPLN criminal justice reporter Samantha Max. Hello, Sam. How's it going? I'm good. How are you, Khalil? Doing well. Doing well. Okay. So truth in sentencing sounds like some legislative jargon. What does this actually mean? So what it really means is that the sentence that a judge hands down to you is the sentence that you're actually going to serve. This is something that, you know, started actually, it became much more popular back in the 1990s where we had the tough on crime movement. We had the crime bill, which actually told states that if you require people to serve at least 85 or 100 percent of their sentence, that you can get federal funding. So a bunch of states across the country passed these so-called truth and sentencing bills. And that means that there's no parole. There's no credits for good behavior. Um, but then after that happened, we started to see pis- prison populations really just exploding. So since then, a lot of states have moved away from it and they're relying more on different programs that can reduce the number of people that are in prison and make sure that people have a chance for early release. Uh, But here in Tennessee, we are actually potentially moving in the opposite direction. We've got a governor who ran on a platform of criminal justice reform, and he put together a task force shortly after he took office to kind of study the state's prison program. And that found that for the last decade before 2019, that the prison population was actually growing, even as other states were shrinking. And that was because people were spending a longer amount of time in prison. So the idea was to rewrite the sentencing code to help that. But instead, the leaders of the House and Senate are sponsoring a bill that would require people to serve 100 percent of their sentence for many crimes ranging from homicide, aggravated assault, even some uh, drug crimes. So you recently sat down with Tony Parker, who served as the commissioner of the Department of Corrections up until last year. What did he have to say about this? So Tony Parker is pretty concerned. Um, He was the commissioner of the Department of Correction for five years and spent almost four decades working for the state's prison system. So he knows what goes on in prisons um, and he's worried because he says that the work that you have to do inside a prison to keep things running and to try to help people, it's tough work. You want people to come in and not just be punished day in and day out for what they've done, but to participate in programs like anger management classes, addiction treatment, maybe taking a high school class or a college class. Um, But a lot of the time people are doing those programs because it is helping them get out early. Sometimes to get parole, you actually are required to take these courses, or sometimes it just helps you get credits to shorten your sentence. So without that incentive, Parker and a lot of others are worried that people just aren't going to want to participate. And that means that you have people sitting around doing nothing 
things might get violent or just coming out of prison at the end of their sentence with less programming to help them. Here's what he had to say. Being able to incentivize positive behavior and programming inside our prisons is key. It works. It works in other states. It works in Tennessee. It's been working in Tennessee. We've been able to reduce the number of our recidivism number for people coming out of TDOC prisons significantly over the last four or five years. And it's directly tied to the programs that we offer people to change their habits, change the way they think. Is he right? Have the numbers been improving? So just a quick fact check on that. We still don't have the most recent numbers from last year. But um, if we look back over the past five years, there has been somewhat of a drop. So the people that were released in 2013, only uh, 40% of them ended up going back to prison within three years. Um, Five years later, the most recent numbers that we have, that number had dropped to 36%. So it's small, but moving downward. Okay, so then what's the argument for truth in sentencing? So the argument for it, it's mainly to help victims. Um, When someone has harmed you or someone that you love, you want to know what is going to happen to the person who caused that harm, how long they're going to spend in prison. And right now, the the formula that we have to calculate when someone is actually going to be released is very complicated. And it's even if someone receives like a 10-year sentence, a 20-year sentence, whatever it might be, it's really difficult to know exactly when they're going to get out. So part of it is to give victims some peace of mind so that they know how long the person is actually going to be in prison and so that they don't have to keep going before the parole board every time that someone asks for parole to have to relive their trauma and say, please don't let this person out. Um, But the other thing is just that it's, you know, it's complicated and, and they want to be able to have something that's a little bit more straightforward. And it's also a way for people that want to say to their constituents, I'm tough on crime. It's a good thing to put on a campaign platform as well. Um, but on the flip side, you know, Parker worries that early release could actually make people who leave prison come out in in a worse place than they started and potentially harm more people, cause more victims if they're not getting the programming when they're actually in prison to help them once they get out. Do you want someone moving in next door to you that has served 100% of their time, right? It sounds good on the front end, but at the end of the day, they've gone in, received very little programming, no incentives to change the conduct, and they're released without supervision into the community. Uh, Or do you want someone who has completed drug and alcohol therapy, uh, anger management, and has a vocational uh, trade where they have a meaningful job that moves in next door? Uh, That is the key. So these programs would still be available to people in prison, but there would just be less of an incentive for people to actually join these programs. So that means people are going to be leaving prison potentially less prepared. In the meantime, prisons could become more dangerous. If you have people just sitting around with nothing to do, they might turn to violence instead. Um, There are other potential consequences. It would cost a lot of money. The General Assembly was originally estimating that this would cost about $40 million a year as the prison population grows. 
the Department of Correction, they sent me estimates that um, 10 years from now, once the prison population has really grown, this could cost the state $96 million every single year to incarcerate all the extra people. That's almost $100 million. Hmm. Um, plus, the state is already experiencing a very severe staffing shortage in its prisons. So if you've got more people behind bars, maybe even having to build more prisons, that would just exacerbate the problem. So money is one part of this debate, but it it seems that at the heart of this, it's a philosophical question about crime and public safety. And I'm sure you talk about this often with a lot of your sources. What is the point of prison and serving time? I mean, people disagree on that. But, you know, many of my sources, they they acknowledge that if someone has caused harm, you have to do something to make it right. Victims want to feel safe. They want to feel a sense of justice. But... The way to get that, people disagree on. So our best hope is just to make sure that people are getting the programming that they need um, and helping as many people as possible. And Tony Parker doesn't think that truth and sentencing will really accomplish that. You know, they're away from their family. I get that. They've, they've committed a crime. There's a penalty they have to pay. And that's going uh, to a place where it separates them from society. But the job and the true mission of corrections is to take that person from day one and focus on re-entry because 95% will be returning to a community that we all live in and love and want to make sure that we take care of. The best way to do that for a correctional employee is to use the tools that you have, the incentives, the programs, and prepare that person to, to re-enter society. When you manipulate that formula and take away the tools, uh, it's not good for public safety. Absolutely not. Pretty unambiguous right there. So, Sam, tell me what's next. Next, it's got to pass through a few more hurdles, um, got to pass through a few more committees. Next, I think it's going to the Senate's Finance Committee. Um, and then we'll see where it goes from there. But it's unclear if the governor would actually support this legislation. He has not committed to it one way or another. So we'll just have to see if it gets passed and if so, whether the governor would actually sign it. Samantha Max is the criminal justice reporter at WPLN. Sam, thank you so much for your ongoing reporting on this. Thanks, Khalil. Hey, before we head to break, you've probably noticed some pretty heavy winds out there. We're in a wind advisory and the WPLN newsroom is monitoring severe weather conditions today. So tune in this afternoon to All Things Considered for the latest updates. We have to take a short break. When we come back, pay attention. We pay a quick visit to the Little Pantry that could on its last day of service. Share your memories of the Little Pantry by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. And this is Nashville. The little pantry that could has been a rock for many folks in need in North, North Nashville. But after more than a decade in operation, the small shop had closed its doors and had its last shopping day on Saturday. This place was more than a free store. Founder Stacy Downey built a family and provided essential services like connecting people with housing and medical care. Our producer, Tasha A. of Lemley, listed the pantry on its last shopping day this past Saturday, and loyal customers said their goodbyes. 
I'm having them unload and stock it up and sort. Pick out the, the bad from the good. I want to get another way to spoil. Kenneth Clay picks up two 50-pound bags of onions, and he carries one on each shoulder. This is one of the last trucks to drop off food at the little pantry that could. Coming up on the last day. Yeah, go missing. They're going to be missed. Because they have a lot of people. Not often you meet people like her. He's talking about founder and director Stacy Downey. After more than 10 years, the pantry is losing its current space. Volunteers are loading in about 15,000 pounds of food for the last time. And inside, Stacy's picking through produce, inspecting vegetables one by one. Some are not up to par. And I'm not about to give people garbage food. You know, this is their grocery store, and they need to have choices that are just as nice as I have when I go to the grocery store. So she's entirely hands-on and keeping engaged. Oh, Jensen, we have milk. milk. They're littles, but just get whatever you want, okay? okay All right, you're welcome. Stacy says she's tried for years to find another suitable and affordable location, and the search has ended. Just not the way she hoped. In a note to her supporters, Stacy says, there is nothing in this new Nashville that we can even begin to afford. So this is it. Formerly homeless advocate Howard Allen shares her frustration. When Jesus took two loaves of bread and five fish and fed 5,000, Stacy's doing the same thing for us. It's a hand up, not a hand out. And now all of a sudden dealing with the realty market here, the church does not want to renew a lease. Howard is one of well over 100 people who arrived early the next morning. It's the final shopping day. The little pantry is set up in two main rooms. One room is like a country grocery store with fully stocked shelves and freezers, while the waiting room doubles as a day shelter. There's free coffee and more. Stacy's also an outreach worker. She gets people set up with identification, hygiene, and emergency supplies, and she connects them to housing and health services. Uh, I just, I, I don't, I don't want the little pantry to shut down for good. Nobody does, because this place, the people, people, cause people need this place. People don't just come here for the food. People just come here, like, because they love coming here. Like Kevin Davis, several people tell me that they're not just here for the approximately 60 pounds of groceries they'll leave with. The little pantry that could is about community, helping each other. I hate that the place is closing today. That's Ashley Taylor. She's a caregiver, certified nursing assistant, and single mother of three in Section 8 housing. She's been coming to the pantry off and on for the past seven years. When I do come back out from the weeks that I'm missing, the fellowship and the people that I meet here, they still remember me. And they're like, we ain't seen you in a long time. Ashley says she sees it as a ministry to come meet new people at the pantry. Just getting to know people, because you never know what the next person is going through. Person after person has their name called. And by 10.30 a.m., people who showed up at 8.30 are finally getting to shop. They take rolling carts and even wheelbarrows through the aisles. And Stacy's waiting by the door to the grocery store. She gets to say hi to each shopper. By early afternoon, it's going to be 250 hellos and goodbyes. And in between the tiers, there's some celebration among the more than 100 people in the small waiting room. They're celebrating Stacy, her years of love for them, and the little pantry that did. It's you and me forever. Stacy! Smile! Woo, that's it, y'all! That show is about to 
You can really hear the love folks have for this place. My next guest knows all about that. Ursula Heights was a longtime volunteer at the Little Pantry that could. Ursula, welcome to This Is Nashville. Thank you so much. And thank you for this program focusing on not only the pantry, but food insecurity in all of Nashville and the surrounding area. I really appreciate your time. Appreciate having you here with us. So tell us about the Little Pantry. Why was it a special place? Um, it was a special place for a lot of reasons. And a lot of the love that you heard and the voices of all the people that spoke before me, um, that's what made it special because that love just radiated from Stacy and all the people there. She was a connector, um, not just with resources in the community to help those people, but connecting them to what they need and to each other. And the volunteers benefited as much as the, the clients that came in and the people we served. Um, just volunteering there, I met people that will stay with me all my life, a dear friend, dear friends, and um, people that I now see on the corner, maybe flying a sign that I know who they are. I know their stories. And so they're not just people who happen to be unhoused or in need that she's helped. They're the real human beings that have made a difference in my life, just getting to know them. Aside from food assistance, what other services did it provide? The food assistance was a big, a big part of it. But I think that sense of community, um, the outreach, I know numerous people that were unhoused or underhoused that now are in homes. And that was because of Stacy's diligence and getting them ID cards. And there's so many steps, maybe finding their social security number. Um, so many steps that have to happen before someone goes from unhoused to housed. And Stacy knew the steps she knew how to help people facilitate that process. And I think that that was a, a huge, I have um, a dear friend of mine was 80 years old and living outside and she found him housing. And he is, he is an amazing human being that I've had the privilege to get to know through the pantry and the ways in which she's able to help him is, you know, goes on and on. She's helped so many people in that way. How did you discover the pantry? What, tell me what led you to become involved? Um, it's very interesting. There was an article in the paper about we give more than food, we give hugs. Mm -hmm. And it was an article about Stacy. So I cut it out and put it in my I'm going to get to pile. And about a year later, while she was still in Charlotte, one of her locations, I decided it was time to go check it out. And I walked in and I was hooked. Um, the love there, I met people. We were so, sorting vegetables together. We were putting cans on the shelves. And um, I just, went, once I met her, I, I knew that's where my soul and spirit needed to be. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil E. Colonna. This hour, we're remembering the little pantry that could, which was something of an institution in North Nashville. My next guest has a special relationship with the little pantry. Doug Seegers is an internationally known musician whose song Going Down to the River topped the Swedish charts in 2014. He joins us now in studio. Doug, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for being here, my friend. So tell me, how did you meet Stacy Downey? I met Stacy when I was living a homeless lifestyle. And um, I knew of the little pantry that could when she first started her operation on 49th and Charlotte. She was in the basement of a church. And I would go there on Saturdays for food and, you know, whatever, maybe to meet some people. I was pretty much just, you know, a loner kind of a person, you know. Mm -hmm. And when I met Stacy, I just immediately fell in love with her because I realized 
I realized what a golden heart she had and what her what what her concern was for for people and you know the fact that she was totally non-judgmental of anybody you know I mean it was just she had this precious spirit that just could tolerate the, the worst person alive you know mm. and she was to me she was just magical and a big inspiration on just on my spirit more than the food or the clothing she was just such an inspiration on my spirit and the right way to treat people you know I can tell that this is really hitting you hard talk talk to me about like when you heard the news that the little pantry was shutting down what'd you feel what went through your mind I feel angry, you know, because because of the fact that there's so many people out there, big organizations, churches, whatever that could that could support her a little, you know, a little bit better. Even just a little bit would have been such a big help, you know. But when I think of all those people that that really, you know, turn their shoulders and, and stuff like that, it it it. Um, I hate to use the word anger, but it it really does make me angry, you know. Mm. When I think that she's got a, she was a woman that dedicated her entire life to, to helping people, whoever you were, you know. And she didn't have to get to know you real well before she'd help you. She'd have her, she'd have her, her hand open for anybody immediately if she if she knew you needed help, you know. She she was just there. That was her, that was her mission, you know. Like, kind of like Mother Teresa of today, you know. Mm-hmm. Ursula, how does what Doug is sharing with us. How does that resonate with you? He said it so beautifully. Stacy's heart. I, I wish I could be more like her. And when I'm around her, I feel like I'm a better person. So what he's saying is absolutely true for me as well. So Ursula, question for you. Have people shared with you how important the pantry is to them? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and again, it is about the food, but it is about coming to hang out with friends, being able to do your laundry and sit with friends and talk and be in, in fellowship. And I think that that's what is going to be lost. And Stacy is the glue for all of that. And, and as Doug said, you know, this has been her life 24-7. She doesn't ever take a day off. She may have a day off, but if she gets a call from somebody in need, that's where she's going to be. And all those people, who will they call now? Yeah. As our city is growing, we have this important resource closing its doors. Ursula, tell me, what does that tell you about Nashville? You know, I've been thinking about this a lot, and I and I think Nashville is a great city, but I think that it's easy to turn your back on people you don't want to see. And I think Nashville has turned its back on a lot of people that um, maybe don't reflect the image they'd like Nashville to have instead of the humanity that exists. And and I I feel disappointed, like Doug said, that that this had to get to this point because Stacy's been looking for a year. She's been looking for a long time to buy property, met with a lot of people. And at some point in time, I really kept praying that something, someone would see the, the desperate need and, and help. Um, and so I'm disappointed in Nashville. I'm disappointed that in this great city, there wasn't an opportunity to find a space so she could continue to do what she's been called to do. 
Doug, what's your response to that? I see you nodding your head. I'm really happy that she spoke like that. Uh, and and uh, what she, Ursula is her name? Yes. Ursula, have I met you at the pantry? I'm just curious. You have, Doug, on some of the songwriters' <laughs> nights on okay. Saturday, but there are so many right. people. Well, it's so nice that you're here because I was really worried I wouldn't be uh, have the, 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 the words that would be powerful enough, but you, you have really said it right. So thank you for being here and supporting Stacy. Thank you. I, I, she is my, she would hate this. She, she would hate to listen to these accolades, but she, I admire her. She's one of the people I admire most that I've ever met in my life. I yes, really, absolutely, really do. Absolutely. So. I want to ask about Songwriters Night, Doug. What was that like? Songwriters Night was a wonderful thing, you know, because I've re really never been the kind of person that has played for fame or fortune, you know. I was grew up as a, with music in my family, and my mother and father played music in a band together, and I grew up with that, so... Anytime I have the opportunity to play, you know, I play it out on the streets, still do. And so when I went to the pantry, I think that's one of my favorite listening crowds of people, you know, because uh, I write songs about, um, you know, that kind of lifestyle and, and, you know, just being in need and being homeless. And I just, I've been, I've been there myself. That's how I can <laughs> relate I can relate to homeless. I've been homeless in and out of my, my life, like as far as I, back as I can remember, really. Speaking of music, before we let you go, Doug, I'd love for you to play us out. Absolutely. Thank you for asking. Yes. I guess this song relates to our, our little show here. I hope it does. Here's Doug Seegers playing his song, Give It Away. If you really want to keep it to give it away if you really want to help somebody get on your knees and pray if you really want to show the world some peace and faith That's musician Doug Seegers playing us out on his song, Give It Away. He was joined by Ursula Heights from The Little Pantry That Could. When we come back, we'll turn our focus to a few other food pantries in our area and visit with the folks who keep them running. Do you rely on food pantries? Tell us about it by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Gotta give it away Away I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Running a food pantry is no small feat. As we've just been hearing, it's about way more than food. These pantries are a community service. One group that focuses on mobile outreach is People Loving Nashville. 
Three nights a week, they head out across downtown over the West Nashville and down to the south to deliver food and clothes to those in need. I caught up with them on a recent rainy night in South Nashville. Haley Childress was leading the volunteers as they handed out groceries and home goods. Happy Tuesday, everybody. I hope you guys had a good week. It's good to see you. Listen up! <laughs> we have some groceries tonight. We didn't bring the clothes because of the rain, but we should bring them next week. But we just have all the groceries right here and then some random home items. So sometimes we'll bring 40 gallons of milk and a ton of cereal and something like eggs. Sometimes we don't have that stuff. So tonight we have more like canned goods. Uh, we have some like pastries and then we have a lot of chips and a lot of yogurt tonight. But it's different every week, which is kind of fun. Some weeks somebody will walk up and they'll be like, oh my gosh, this is my favorite yogurt. So we'll sneak that one person a few more and hope that nobody else sees it. Yeah. Well, you see all these fine folks right here? We're all a little bit under the weather, either financially, mentally, physically, something. And these fine folks are trying to help every one of us. They usually ask me to say prayer on Tuesday night, and everybody that shows up gets free food, and they usually have free clothes, at least one outfit. On days that I don't have any money or a job, this helps out a whole lot. That's just the truth. Hey there, how are you? Here specifically, I think there's just so much trauma that happens all the time. And honestly, so many people like passing away or just such intense stuff happening that they like kind of casually talk about it. Yeah. So I really have to like watch after like the volunteers and like we do a roundabout at the end to like check in. Cause sometimes like he just said that they found somebody that had killed two people, you know? Yeah. And like some, we've had residents here that have passed away and like there's so much heavy stuff that's just kind of like shared because it, it just feels like it's so frequent that to them it's not necessarily even like a big deal. It's just like another day or it's the afternoon, you know? Thanks for being here. Obviously the rain is, just makes it kind of not fun. You probably drove here longer than the time that you served, so thank you for that. That is included in your serve time that you put in. Um, we will tell the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> we will be sure to tell the Lord. <laughs> the traffic was crazy today, and they still came, Lord. <laughs> okay, we love you guys. Drive safe. I'd like to introduce a panel of guests doing work across our city and region. Jasmine Ledsinger is Director of Programming at The Store. Lydia Youssef is Executive Director of El Mahaba Center. And Ashley Anderson is the Founder and Executive Director of Portland Pay It Forward in Portland, Tennessee. Thank you all for being here. Ashley, let me tell, tell me about Portland Pay It Forward. How did you come to create it? We started as a little simple Facebook page. Uh, people would give away things that they didn't need any longer. Um, you know, if you had clothing or diapers or just anything. And I've always had a passion for giving. I started collecting bread um, from the different stores in our neighborhood. And I set up in our town gazebo. We went from serving five people bread and milk to last week, 300 families, um, two weeks worth of food. Tell me about the people you serve. 
They are some of the best people you will ever meet. This community is so wonderful. I cannot express that enough. Um, we have a lot of elderly that we serve. Um, those are some of our most forgotten people. They are on disability or they get Medicare or, you know, but they make too much to get food stamps, but not enough to live. And it's either medicine or food for them. Right now it's food, medicine, or gas for them. So that's that's our biggest and our main concern are our elderly. Is serving rural communities any different than helping people in urban areas? A little different. We do not have as many homeless um, in our area. We do have a lot of transient people that come through. There is a train stop near here and they get off and they'll come to us. A lot of the churches send them to us, but we do not have a big homeless population here. Lydia, who does El Mahaba Center serve? Hello, thank you for having me, Khalil. Um, yeah, El Mahaba is here in South Nashville and we serve predominantly Arabic speaking folks. So that includes cops, Iraqis, uh, cops with a T, not cops as in the profession. Um, Iraqis, Yemenis, um, Moroccans, uh, you name it. What type of mutual aid efforts do you all engage in? Yes, so we have an event called um, Community Saturdays. Um, so monthly we have furniture distributions for newcomers. Um, a lot of times when you're not a refugee, you don't have a resettlement agency or any type of process when coming into the U.S. for here's your house, here's the job, um, here's how life is going to go. Um, so we want to offer newcomer support in the form of furniture and connecting them to resources. Um, and then we also have a monthly diaper bank with over 70 families on it um, of diverse uh, Arabic speaking backgrounds. And then we do weekly distributions to undocumented uh, Arabic speaking families. I'm sure that diaper bank comes in handy. Oh, for sure, for sure. And that's a great time to see communities, um, community members coming together too. So Jasmine, your shop, the store, is a different type of food pantry. What makes it so different? Hi, Khalil. Thank you for having me. Um, kind of what makes the store different is we're a free grocery store. So our customers actually come into our store and they're able to pick their own items. So they're greeted, they get their shopping cart, and they're actually able to shop for their own items in a realistic setting of a grocery store. And they even get an authentic checkout process. So all of their items are checked out by our volunteers. And then they're even provided a receipt to show what they would have realistically spent in a grocery store setting that can also help them with financial planning and budgeting in the future. So who are some of your typical customers? Um, some of our typical customers come from some of our referral partner agencies. So we work with different referral partners throughout the community that refer folks to us. Um, we also work within the Edge Hill community because that's just where we live. So a lot of our customers come right through from Edge Hill. Um, and just like a lot of the other folks that have spoke today, um, we serve a lot of seniors. Um, seniors are a, a vulnerable population and I think the pandemic taught us that. Um, so we, we serve a little bit of everyone. We serve veterans, we work with Operation Stand Down. So um, we're kind of an open revolving door to all those who are in need. Are there any restrictions to being served at the store? 
No, not necessarily. Um, we definitely have a criteria of 200% level of the federal poverty line, but also we serve those who are just going through hardship. Um, an example I like to use is, you know, the ca catastrophic um, natural tornadoes that we dealt with in March of 2020. Um, so may maybe you might not um, financially be in that position on a normal basis, but some life happened to you and then you need a resource. Again, I think the pandemic pointed that out to a lot of us. I always like to say one thing in your life can happen and it can change your circumstances. So um, we try to serve any and everyone that uh, may need assistance on an ongoing basis. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're talking this hour about food pantries and the communities they serve with the, the owners of a few food pantries in our region. Uh, you just mentioned the pandemic, and I, I can imagine that the past few years, the pandemic has really increased demand for your services. What has that been like, Ashley? We went from right before the pandemic hit, serving maybe 75 families, and the month of March when the pandemic hit, I, it tripled in numbers. Um, and our numbers are rising, but our donations are down because not as many people are giving financially. It's, it's a struggle right now for everyone. So we're seeing donations at a low and monetary donations at a low. Lydia, I'm, I'm wondering, how about you all at the El Mahaba Center? Oh, definitely huge impact. Um, we actually had just started in June of 2019, which in hindsight was <laughs> really interesting time to start an organization. Um, and we had we were at that time developing our youth programming. So we had an ACT class. We were launching tutoring. Um, we had our monthly live streams at that point. And then, bam, <laughs> uh, March 2020 hit. And it was like on the ground um, getting information out. And tragically in South Nashville, because um, they were, there was a lot of money to support people during that time. It just went to the wrong organizations, in my opinion. Um, going back to what Ursula and Doug were saying about very large organizations, this is a really huge problem in Nashville um, that don't have community bases and are not on the ground. Um, so what occurred was that thousands and thousands and ten thousands of dollars um, did not quote unquote trickle down. Um, so in, in March and April, our organization really had to transition and say we were going to develop our community programming very systematically um, to now it's just get what we can distribute it to the people as quickly as possible. Um, so that's how that kind of changed our narrative too was just um, respond to the community as fast as possible. I wonder if there's a kind of support network that you all have found, you know, to keep the services like this going. Would you say that there is a spirit of collaboration among organizations like yours? Jasmine? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, the often term is a village raised, raises a child. I think that is same when it comes to um, nonprofits and community organizations that are there to do the work. Um, I think, you know, uh, kind of like what Lydia was saying, you have to have people who have boots on the ground and who are serving in the communities. Um, I know the store itself, we work a lot within Edge Hill. We work with 
Brenda Mara, who is a pivotal person in the community in Salama Urban Ministries. They actually help us work, uh, run our senior program that transports seniors to the store each week. So without that collaboration, the store would not be who we are. Um, and adding volunteers into that too. Um, the store is almost fully operational by volunteers um, and they support our efforts in so many ways. So I think that is also a key when it comes to working with the community and having the community's uh, support. Lydia, do you feel that type of collaborative support? Definitely. I think um, collaboration is sometimes, you know, it's just like any human relationship. Sometimes there are people who are very open to it. There are some people who want to exploit that. And then there are some people who are just wanting to develop a really healthy relationship. So a big part of our food distributions happens because of our collaboration with the Nashville Food Project. Our diaper bank is in collaboration with an amazing organization as well, the Nashville Diaper Connection. Um, and we also are working with the Nashville Food Project against uh, food scarcity to really tackle the root of this issue. Um, so not just, you know, giving until, uh, but, you know, really patching the wound as well um, through a community garden initiative in Mill Ridge as well. So we have very valuable relationships um, through this work. Now, Lydia, you're working with immigrant communities where language barriers can create difficulties. How do you make sure that your communities are adequately served? We are um, part of the community, so that helps. Um, there's a lot of uh, nuance in that. I think um, language is not an issue for us because most of our volunteers, board and staff speak Arabic. So we're able to facilitate very well and we're able to make people feel comfortable culturally. Um, and we're also very picky about what donations we take. Um, so one of um, our collaborations with the National Food Project, we've noticed that a lot of immigrants uh, do not like canned food. Um, they really hate preservatives. And that's because we come typically from countries that are very agricultural, from Iraq and Egypt. Um, and people are used to eating in their home countries, very organic from the earth food. Um, so when they come here, it's extremely triggering, <laughs> extremely traumatic experience to eat, you know, white bread and beans and corn. Um, people want food that is fresh. Um, so that is something through the Nashville Food Project that we are able to offer our community members. It's not just here, take some food, but here's some food to comfort you. Um, take it as a moment to cook with your kids, to have some quality time after work with them. Um, and that's super important to us. We do that. That translates in our diaper bank as well and what donations we take for our moms um, in our mama kits and what we don't. Got just about a minute left. Ashley, I'm going to ask you this last question. I wish I had more time for all of you, but, you know, Ashley, what do you want people to know about this work and what it really takes? Like what is truly needed to keep it going for folks in need here in our region? It takes passion. It takes heart. It takes understanding. It takes a lot of work, hard work. Um, understanding that we are in this 24 seven. When you do this, you eat, breathe, and live this. And we just, we need the funding. We need the support. We need the love from the community to keep going. That is Ashley Anderson from Portland, Pay It Forward. She was joined by Lydia Youssef from the El Mahaba Center and Jasmine Ledsinger from The Store. Thank you all for being with us. Really appreciate it. 
We want to thank everyone who tuned in for this hour. You can join us tomorrow for our conversation with author and New York Times columnist Margaret Rankle about her new book, Late Migrations. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to India Pongarcher, Lauren Bailey, Benjamin Tyson, Melissa Thomas, and Emily Siner. The conversation does not end here. Head to our survey online to find out more at This Is Nashville. This Is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other. <laughs>